This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Now, we've just been through a sort of mini watershed in terms of global and regional diplomacy. The recent trilateral US-Japan-South Korea summit at Camp David in the States, then the East Asia summit in Jakarta. The US was represented there by Vice President Kamala Harris. And that was followed in very short order by the G20 in New Delhi. That was minus China's President Xi Jinping, but President Joe Biden was there. That was in New Delhi, and it also saw a reiteration of the U.S.-India relationship. And if that wasn't enough, President Biden then flew to Hanoi for a pretty significant upgrade of the U.S.-Vietnam relationship. So to join me to unpack what all of this means, I am really pleased to have Scott Marcial and Lynn Kwok. Dr. Kwok works on the politics, law, and security of the Asia-Pacific with a focus on the South China Sea and the U.S. and ties between the U.S. and China and others in Southeast Asia. She is a Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Scott Marcial is currently a Senior Advisor at Bauer Group Asia. He has more than 35 years in diplomacy and public policy, most of it in Southeast Asia. He served as U.S. Ambassador to Myanmar from 2016 to 20, Indonesia from 2010 to 13, and as the first U.S. Ambassador for ASEAN Affairs from 2008 to 10. He's written a book on ASEAN and the United States. It's called Imperfect Partners, and I recommend it. Now, I could go on and on, but we need to start with the topic at hand. So thank you both, Dr. Kwok, Ambassador Marcial. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on, Nilal. Lynn, what were the one or two things that stood out for you from these recent meetings, the East Asia Summit, the G20, and Vietnam? Well, I think the most notable thing that stood out to me is that to the extent that there was before, there is no longer any a priori assumption or even the pretense of it of the overriding benefit of multilateral engagement. President Biden's decision to pass on the ASEAN summit in Jakarta in favor of heading to Vietnam, I think, sends a strong message that a multilateral grouping needs to demonstrate its utility or risk irrelevance or being sidelined, despite lip service being paid to it. it. In this case, you know, reiterations of the centrality of ASEAN. Um, President Xi's decision to give the G20 a miss has been painted as a loss for China in various media outlets. But it's not entirely clear to me that China lost out on much, if at all. The joint statement was one that China could sign on to insofar as it failed to condemn Russia for the war in Ukraine. And Beijing is focusing on pushing for an architecture and for institutions in which it can exercise greater influence. This was seen in its recent successful push for an expansion of BRICS. And apart from the meetings you mentioned, I think we should also be watching the upcoming Belt and Road Forum. It'll be the third in the series. It takes place next month, and it also marks the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, even if Italy withdraws from the Belt and Road Initiative, we are likely to see continued support from other quarters, notwithstanding slow progress on the BRI in the last few years, given the pandemic and China's lackluster growth. Now, another thing that stood out for me was that the G20 cemented India's image as a global diplomatic and strategic player. This will both increase its importance to the Indo-Pacific strategies of the US and its allies, but also its propensity and ability to stake out a path that is more independent of these countries, as demonstrated by its stance on Russia-Ukraine 
and its claim to leadership of the so-called global south. Ambassador, your thoughts? What struck me from the EAS summit and the G20 was that in some cases you could argue that the main accomplishment was to be able to get a consensus statement, even though that consensus statement in, in both cases, in my view, was not all that impressive. And uh, so you have a situation in both EAS and within ASEAN, but also in the G20 where you have obvious division. And so the solution and the success is to water things down so that you can get a consensus. And I, I sound more critical than I probably am because this is not unusual. I think sometimes there's an expectation for these summits to be defining events, and sometimes they aren't. And the value of them is more leaders getting the chance to meet and the fact of the meetings driving bureaucracies to finish up work that maybe they've been working on for some time. But I think, again, it's mostly division leading to a weak consensus. Now, on I would say on President Biden's visit to Vietnam, I, I normally, even as a former diplomat, tend to play down a little bit these formal protocol upgrades. But in this case, I think it's significant because it's a double upgrade, so-called double upgrade to a comprehensive strategic partnership. And I think it will be portrayed largely in the context of Southeast Asia in between the U.S. and China. And that's a piece of it. But I think that there's a tendency to exaggerate that because Vietnam and all the rest of Southeast Asia is working to build relationships not only with China and the U.S., but with multiple other countries. And I think in particular, the U.S.-Vietnam relationship and the upgrade at least seems to have the intention of having a fairly significant economic component. So we'll have to see what happens and you know, what tangible results come out of that on semiconductors and the like. But that's the side of it that looks most interesting to me. Okay, while we are at it and on Southeast Asia and ASEAN, the Myanmar dilemma persists in the region. It causes a lot of damage, affects the credibility of ASEAN, spills over across the region in terms of refugees, organized crime, lost opportunities. What are your thoughts, Ambassador, on a way forward on that front? Myanmar is really tough. And I think the fundamental problem, I, I think ASEAN's approach has been flawed, but I think the world's approach has been flawed because much of it rests on the assumption that there's some deal to be hammered out between the junta and the forces of resistance, some kind of compromise. I just don't think there is. Um, the people of Myanmar want the military out of power. They've suffered under the military for so long. And the military is totally uncompromising and waging war against its own people. So it, it kind of sounds to me like the people who say, well, geez, why don't Ukraine and Russia just strike a deal? Sounds great, but I don't think there's a deal to be had at this point. And I don't think there's a deal to be had that would be good and sustainable for the country until and unless the junta is so weakened that it's willing to make major concessions. And we're not at that point yet. So I don't fault ASEAN for that, and I don't think either ASEAN or any other outside country can fundamentally change that. But I think it highlights the need to spend, it seems odd coming from a diplomat, less time on the diplomacy now and more effort on putting pressure on the junta so that perhaps you can create conditions where dialogue and compromise is possible. Okay, interesting. Grim, but interesting. Uh, Dr. Kwok, this Myanmar issue has been thrashed out ad nauseum. 
for well over a decade now in Southeast Asia, and it is not going away. What is the perspective from the region? Well, I'm not sure about the perspective from the region, but I think I very much agree with um, what Ambassador Marcel says. It's really a difficult issue, and it's not clear to me what more ASEAN can do beyond what it is already doing, namely keeping the five-point consensus on life support and continuing to push, however plaintively, for its implementation. It is clear that ASEAN has not been successful in pushing the junta to cease um, violence or engage in dialogue with its opponents. So the consensus has been anything but a success. Still, this consensus prevents the political and humanitarian crisis in Myanmar from doing broader geopolitical damage, firstly by bridging differences within the ASEAN bloc on how to handle the junta. There's a disagreement between those who want to maintain a hard line towards the junta and those who wish to engage it. And secondly, by removing a potential roadblock to external engagement with ASEAN, because the last thing we want is to see um, external uh, players um, uh, cease to engage with ASEAN because of the Myanmar crisis. Hmm. Back to you, Ambassador, for a moment, more broadly in terms of engagement in the region and competing with China for influence in the region. What is missing from U.S. strategy? I constantly hear that U.S. foreign policy leans militarist without the the attractive economic component which China seems to excel at, notwithstanding debt traps, building infrastructure in Africa, for instance. The IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, is generally seen as underwhelming, but returning to free trade deals is politically untenable in the U.S. How can the U.S. bridge this and can the region itself do more, considering it wants the U.S. to remain and strengthen engagement? Yeah, I think this is a really critical point. I don't think the intent of U.S. policy or strategy is to emphasize the military, but in some ways it's easier to do that because you have all the tools at your disposal. On the economic side is where the U.S. has been relatively weak, even though it's still a really important economic player in the region and a huge market for much of Southeast Asia. But there's no question that the U.S. has lost economic influence, first by pulling out of TPP and then so far being unable to come up with really practical mechanisms to increase trade, investment, and engage on infrastructure. So it's a political will issue in Washington, I think, more than anything else. Certainly, I would like to see the countries of Southeast Asia maybe offer up more ideas on things that could be done, more partnership ideas. But I think fundamentally, the issue does rest in in Washington, and political leaders need to understand that if they want to maintain U.S. influence, they need to find a way to move ahead on the economic and trade side. The only other point I would make is that I think it's a mistake. I see both Washington and Beijing doing this, is despite saying we're not asking you to take sides, the tendency to go to the region and warn the region about dealing with the others. And both Beijing's doing it, Washington's doing it. And I just think that's a mistake. It's a it's an effort in vain. And that the U.S. focus should be a lot less on talking to Southeast Asia about China. The region knows China perfectly well. And much more on the positive agenda, including trade, but also education, health, climate change, etc. And, you know, basically go to Southeast Asia and don't mention China. Very good points. Uh, your thoughts on all that, Lynn? Thanks, Nomal. Let me just focus on what the region can do to encourage greater U.S. engagement. The ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific 
document provides guidance on the broad areas in which ASEAN would welcome cooperation on. So these are maritime cooperation, connectivity, achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and economic cooperation. And even under the non-economic cooperation heads, we have economic elements. So those are all broad areas in which the US can usefully cooperate with the region on. But I think ASEAN and its member states, as um, Scott mentioned earlier, could also usefully move from the general to the specific to provide concrete instances of where engagement would be welcome and helpful. They could, for instance, I think, draw up a master list of projects they would welcome working uh, together with the United States on. I was struck recently when the senior official from US ally came on his visit to Singapore, asked me how his country could engage ASEAN if it wanted to respect ASEAN centrality. And I think it's important for ASEAN and its member states to be able to take some of the guesswork out of this. The onus should be on ASEAN and its member states to provide clues at the very least um, to these countries on how they can cooperate in the economic realm. So Malaysia in its new industrial master plan 2030 talks about desiring greater cooperation on semiconductors, the sustainable development of critical minerals and clean energy technologies. And I think the U.S. engagement in these areas would also help the United States with its de-risking strategy from China. So that just points to one way forward for one Southeast Asian country. on the Indo-Pacific economic framework being underwhelming, indeed it is. But I think ASEAN and its member states will have to take it for what it is. And at the very least, it signals the US desire to remain economically engaged in the region and understanding about how that economic engagement helps the United States strategically. And I think that's really important. And it also provides the region with the opportunities to shape from the very outset a largely inchoate framework. And I think that's important. So those are just some ideas to start the ball rolling in terms of how the US and ASEAN and its member states can forge greater cooperation moving forwards. Okay, Ambassador Marcial, let me sort of take you up on some of what you said earlier. To a great degree, the U.S. has an enormous reservoir of soft power in the region. You know, the Lowy Institute survey shows it, the data shows it, with some exceptions, of course, but a lot of soft power. Uh, does the U.S., however, understand Southeast Asia? And what does the U.S. need to understand? I ask you this because I also get this same question working for a Southeast Asian paper in D.C. I kind of get the question, you know, I have to explain Southeast Asia sometimes, to various people. So I'm just curious as to your views on that. It's a tough question. I would say there are some people in the U.S. government who have a pretty good understanding of Southeast Asia, but overall, the U.S. various administrations haven't paid as much attention to Southeast Asia really since the end of the Cold War, although that attention is starting to increase. I think there's understanding tends to be more bilateral focused I think it's hard for people in Washington, and and I include myself when I was there, to know how to engage with Southeast Asia. You know, an example, you ask the Secretary of State or even the President to go to the region to engage with Southeast Asia. And they say, well, do I have to go to all 10 countries? Which countries do I go to? Why should I go to this one, not that one? And going to ASEAN meetings is useful in some ways, but it's not often very satisfying, if I can use that term, in terms of the substance. 
And so I think it's a challenge to figure out how practically to engage and also to understand. I, I think this is the area I mentioned earlier. That people don't understand how much agency Southeast Asian nations have in their own independence and their desire to make their own decisions. And so there's a need to understand better that agency and have a little bit more confidence that just because leader X goes to Beijing and signs a couple deals does not mean that the country has become a Chinese vassal state. So there's certainly more that could be done. But again, to go back to Lynn's point, I mean, a couple of Southeast Asian nations do a really good job of engaging with Washington. Singapore and Vietnam specifically come to mind. Mm -hmm. The rest, it's a more uneven record. So I think there's more that could be done from them on the economic side, certainly offering suggestions, but also on the diplomatic side. And, you know, let's work together. Let's talk about these things. Uh, there's some of that going on, certainly, but more would be welcome. Lynn, I have to give you the last word on that same question. What should the U.S. understand about Southeast Asia? Well, I think Washington does to a certain extent understand Southeast Asia, but I would say that some points uh, bear repeating. First, I think it should understand that a desire in the region for the United States to remain present and engaged at the same time coexists in some quarters with anti-US and anti-Western sentiment and what is sometimes seen as China bashing entrenches such sentiment. Second, regional objections to China's actions, most notably in the South China Sea, where China's actions flouting international law hurt countries' economic interests, uh, but one factor in countries' broader relations with China. Uh, Southeast Asian countries nonetheless generally desire closer ties with their militarily and economically powerful neighbor. China is not seen as the enemy, but as a large neighbor with whom they sometimes have disputes. And I think that's very a very important distinction to make. So the U.S. framing of China as a threat or as an authoritarian challenge has very little traction in the region and could also be counterproductive. Um, third, uh, countries are more worried about a U.S.-China clash than they are about Chinese coercion, which they consider themselves rightly or wrongly able to manage. A U.S.-China clash is perceived as having unpredictable and potentially catastrophic consequences. And finally, while many in the United States understand that Southeast Asia is not a homogenous bloc, Less understood in Washington is how even within Southeast Asian countries, attitudes towards the United States and China vary. For instance, I was recently in Malaysia, where I was told by a senior official in the National Security Council that Malaysia has excellent ties with China and that there was no dispute with it over the South China Sea. But the very next day, a frazzled-looking government official in the Prime Minister's office told me that China was keeping him very busy, particularly in respect of its actions in the South China Sea. So quite inconsistent attitudes there. Very interesting. Well, Dr. Lynn Kwok, Ambassador Scott Marcial, thank you. It was great having both of you on board the show today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nomal. And thank you, Scott. Thank you. That nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. That was a podcast by The Straits Times.
Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.